for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned because epilepsy research and science are cool. Today we are talking to Ashwin Chari, a neurosurgical trainee and PhD student at Great Ormond Street Hospital and UCL. His PhD is funded by the Gosh Children's Charity Surgeon Scientist Programme. When Ashwin grows up, his words, he wants to be an academic neurosurgeon, where he balances looking after patients and doing research into improving outcomes for children with epilepsy. Ashwin is also the clinical fellow on the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE, um, guideline on the diagnosis and management of epilepsy. He is an associate editor for the British Journal of Neurosurgery and the research lead for the neurosurgical charity Brainbook. Brainbook is really cool, by the way. We'll put a link to it um, in the writing down there somewhere. In what little spare time he has, he loves hanging out with his wife and two-year-old daughter. Ashwin, please tell us about yourself and how you got into your industry. How, like, this is not an easy role, actually role plural, that you, all these roles that you were doing. So tell us about yourself. I was born in India. Whereabouts? Um, I grew up in, uh, in Chennai, um, in South India. Um, and so I speak Tamil. Cool. Um, and I grew up in loads of different countries around Southeast Asia, but mostly in Singapore. Oh, wow. Um, and I guess my, kind of journey into medical school and becoming a doctor um, was just something that I thought was really cool. Um, my dad's an accountant, my mom used to work at my school and I was like, I wanna do something a bit different. Um, so I was like, I wanna do medicine. And my dad was like, are you sure? And he's like the only brown dad that will ever say, don't do medicine <laughs> yeah. to son. But he was literally Not like- Not that you're stereotyping, you sure? but yeah, okay. Are you sure, sure, are you sure, sure, sure? And, um, but I decided it was something that I really wanted to do. Uh, and so I applied to do medicine in the UK and I got in. So I was like, okay, let's go. When did you move um, to the UK then? When did you move? Uh, 2006. Oh gosh, well, you sound horrifically English. I'm sorry if that's yes. not, but. <laughs> yes, yeah, I do. Um, and then in terms of getting into neurosurgery, I think it was just kind of luck in a way. I, um, I think I wanted to do something surgical. I wanted to do something with my hands. Um, and my first ever clinical rotation, so like in the hospital, seeing patients, interacting with patients, was a general surgical job. And um, yeah, just really, really enjoyed it. You know, enjoyed doing stuff with my hand, getting involved in theatre, scrubbing into operations, helping close the skin at the end. What about the grossness? What about gross things? How do you cope with that? Yeah, it's cool. Just goes over your um, head now. I guess, I, I guess I've taken out some of the grossness by going into neurosurgery, which is relatively cleaner. You know, there's there's hopefully not very much poo around and that sort of thing. Um, that would be gross. But <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think I wanted to do something with my hands. I wanted to do something surgical. And then I went into my neurosurgical rotation thinking, you know, this hyped up specialty, it's going to be bleh, whatever. You know, it's just going to be another specialty. You know, everyone always hypes it up. And then I got there and I saw the brain and I was like, mm, this is cool. Um, and then I was hooked. 
And so why did you choose to focus on paediatric brains and why the epilepsies? I fell into both of those things. So um, up until I'd say about three and a bit years ago, I had no idea what I wanted to do within neurosurgery. You know, you're still a fairly junior trainee. You haven't experienced necessarily all the different specialties within it. Um, and I liked most of the things I was doing. There was nothing where I was like, I hate this. I don't want to do this at all. Um, and at that point, I was looking for things to do academically. I always wanted to do research. Um, and I've, you know, throughout my career, I've, I've always tried to apply for jobs where not only were you doing clinical stuff, but you also had dedicated time to do research. Um, and so this um, Surgeon Scientist Fellowship came up as part of Great Ormond Street Charity. Uh, and I was like, this looks really cool. Let's apply for that. Because I didn't really have a, a kind of research direction or a clinical direction. And I think those two go together in a way. It's really nice if your area of research is also the area that you're specializing in clinically, um, because then you are able to take the questions that you think are unanswered and answer them. And then if you have the answers, you're then able to translate them back and say, hey, look, this is how we can benefit patients as a result of the research. Um, and so I don't really know what I wanted to do. Um, and one of the, the way kind of this scheme was set up was that they picked you. And so you then got the money to do a PhD for the next three years. And then there was, you know, five or six neurosurgically related projects. Um, and it was like, you know, you can pick whichever you want from these. Um, and I saw the epilepsy one and I thought, this looks exciting. Um, I had never met any of my supervisors before. So my supervisor is a, a guy called Professor Rod Scott, who's based partly at Great Ormond Street and partly in the US. Um, and Martin Tisdall, who's our main epilepsy neurosurgeon. And yep, hadn't really met them before. And I went, hey, do you mind if I come and do your project? And they were like, yeah, sure. And here we are. I swear you're making that sound simpler than it is. You got to be... A no, no, but it, but it genuinely is. It's something that I've fallen into. So I had six months before um, before the PhD started in terms of the funding mm -hmm. and stuff. And so I had a six month kind of clinical rotation um, at Queen Square just before starting the PhD. And I said, you know, going into something epilepsy related, I should probably know something about epilepsy and epilepsy surgery. Um, so I decided to um, do six months with the epilepsy surgeons at Queen Square, Andrew McAvoy and Anna Mizrahi, and ended up having a really, really good time with them, really falling in love with the field in a way. Um, and yeah, and, and that's how I've gotten into epilepsy. God, I wish I could see behind the scenes right now. Andrew McAvoy, who's my surgeon. So this that guy is, well, maybe I should apologize to the rest of the population, but it's due to that guy that I am still alive. So, you know, well, I've many clinicians and stuff in, in the sphere, but yeah, he removed most of the dodgy bits, so that's good. Um, can you tell us stuff about your career so far that has been a surprise to you? And like what has been ultra challenging? What has been ultra rewarding so far? I'll start with the rewarding first. I, I don't think you, as a very certainly not as a medical student and and even less so as a as a very junior doctor but i think one of the things that has been the most rewarding is is seeing the reaction to your patients and in the pediatric setting that not just the patients but their parents as well um i think it's something that you don't really get a grip of until the first day you're a registrar um so translation is you know, you're probably the most, especially at night, you're the most senior person on site. Um, your boss, who's the consultant, who's often at home. 
um, and it doesn't happen so much in the pediatric setting, but in the adult setting, certainly, you know, if someone comes in at two o'clock in the morning and needs an operation that you can do, then you're the one that sees them at the door, you're the one that does the operation, you know, you'll discuss it with your boss who's at home, um, but it's very much expected that you, know, you do that operation. Um, they're there to come in if, if you need a hand, um, but you know, then you see them in the morning when they wake up, you see them for the next few days afterwards. Um, and I think until you've done that process one, five, ten, a hundred times, I certainly wasn't sure that I had picked the right specialty. Um, but then you do that a few times and you think, okay, I'm getting this kick out of this, that, that it's kind of, it's kind of affirming that, that you've, you've made the right choice. I don't know, five years before that. Mm. And how, how do you cope with when, I mean, it's going to sound awful, but in situations that aren't, they don't necessarily have the outcome that you'd hoped for or that a family had mm. hoped for. How do you deal with that? It's it's really hard. Uh, and I think you really rely on the support network that's around you. Um, uh, and there, are, I think there are two main support networks. One is your family. Um, and I think having a having an understanding family that you can talk to, um, you know, honestly about these things is is really really important. Um, and and the, the longer you're in it, the more they understand, and the more the questions that you get back from them in a way are really really pertinent, and they make you think about things that, you know, another doctor may not necessarily make you think about. Um, and the second really big support group is your peers and your bosses at work. Um, I think. You know, there is there are certainly I've, I've heard stories of of my colleagues, for example, who've you know had a bad outcome, and that support network at work hasn't been there for them, and actually it's it's really really difficult. Um, when that support network is there, I think they help you distill what is what is important in a way. So they they will spend some time looking at what maybe you could have done differently, how this situation could have been avoided. But then actually a lot of it is just saying, look, you're in a really high risk specialty. These things sometimes happen. And actually, you know, you need to be in a strong enough place to then do that same operation the next day or even a few hours later and still do your best at that um, and still be confident that you can do your best at that. That requires something, man. I mean, that's what they're there for. You can't, I don't think you can get through that alone. I think your, your support network is there for that. I've had uh, friends be involved in psychiatry, psychology, um, well, I say involved, still involved in, and they've had to, um, as part of their training, but I think as part of their own mental health and, you know, the level of saneness, I made that word up, but it's really helpful, uh, helpful for them to see actually a counsellor quite regularly to learn how to cope with this stuff. Is that ever recommended in, in your field? I don't think it's routine hmm. now. Um, certainly within our our training programs and even after training, I don't think there's kind of a, an established pathway to do that. I, 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 I would see the benefit of it, I think. Um, but I think there's a lot of camaraderie from from your own department, from your own group in a way. Um, and, and we rely a lot upon that. Um, one of the things which I guess you've kind of mentioned already, and I'm sure we'll come to talk about is is time pressures on on, on surgeons, and so I uh, like I don't know where you'd find time for that in a way, but I <laughs> I do think it's probably something that we need to think about more than we do at the moment. Yeah, I think it would be 
you guys are worth so much by guys i mean those of all sexes um so much to so many and not just the parents but to families and to society i think it's really important that you guys are looked after as well um it's a very high pressured role i think that 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 worth in a way is is really interesting to look at so we have a we have a very big impact on a very small number of people um, whereas, you know, if you're looking to maximize community impact on a general population, then I should be in public health. Um, and so actually it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a very niche type of impact. Um, and I think that's, that's important to understand in a way, you know, people always think, oh, surgeons to this and that, but actually the, 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 we can only operate on one patient at a time. Um, and so actually the impact that we, that we have is, is relatively small. Do you know what? I actually disagree with you because <laughs> I, I know what you mean, I, but so if someone, say myself, has, uh, is about to die pretty much or is a very high risk of SUDEP um, and injury because of their epilepsy, right? But you do the surgery, you completely transform their lives. Well, kind of like allow them to continue to live. Um, the Im impact isn't just on that person, it's on their family, it's on the ones that love them, it's on their partner, it's, um, the impact is also on their employer, it really is, the impact is on their friends. It's a real, there is a real, real ripple effect um, and I think that that is not seen enough by, for instance, governments because they think, oh, it's just this minority, just 600,000 odd people with epilepsy. But what about their families? What about their friends? What about their employers? Should they have them? All this different thing. And when you multiply that number, it's actually a huge number of people that are affected. And therefore, I think you guys should, in my opinion, know that you don't just impact a slot, but actually a much larger number of the population. And now I need to vomit. And I'm sorry if you need a bowl as well, because that was a bit vomity. But do you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, no, I get that. And, and I guess I, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> you should take it, you know. Um, and, and also, you're not only stopping seizures. A lot of the time, you're bettering people's mental health and, and all these different things. So, for, you know, neurological health, as we know, um, impacts physical and psychiatric. So, yeah. Anyway, deep stuff. Um, <laughs> what would you say is the most challenging thing that you deal with day to day that sometimes makes you think, dude, I can't cope with this anymore? Right? What do you want other people to understand of the challenges? And by other people, I mean maybe other, other clinicians, um, academics, as well as um, the general public. I think it would probably be the, the competing pressures. Um, and so you... And, I, and I'm talking in general about, about maybe not specifically about epilepsy surgery, but about neurosurgery in general, is that you, a good neurosurgeon, I think, is someone who is um, obviously, you know, good, good with their hands, good with their clinical decision making, etc. But you also need to devote that time to both hone your skills, um, be that the clinical skills, be that the surgical skills, um, but also you need to devote your time to be there for your patients. So, you know, if you're there on a Monday, but not there the rest of the week, and then you happen to do an operation on the Monday and that patient has something happen to them on the Tuesday or Wednesday that needs you, it's kind of, it's kind of difficult if you're not there. Um, and I think that, that, that ownership, that, that 
surgeons have over their patients is 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 for a reason. Um, and so, you know, it, it is very difficult to say, okay, I'm going to be a surgeon that also does research and therefore I'm going to be around for two days of the week and do an operating list and do a clinic and then I'm not going to be around in, in my research institute for the other three days because actually it doesn't really work that way. Um, and I think if, you're, if your patients need you, then their needs come first. Um, and so often there are there are plenty of people who who have done the hard struggle and got to a position of being, you know, a fully qualified neurosurgeon, a fully qualified academic, um, and 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 trying to find this balance. But actually, they just get sucked into the patient care side of things and feel that they don't have not just the the physical time, but also the mental time to devote to the research. So I think that's that's probably the most difficult thing about trying to be a surgeon and an academic at the same time. I think there's probably, uh, certainly since I've started uh, in neurosurgery for the last five or six years, there's been more and more examples of people who've done it and people who are doing it really, really well. Um, and I think having those kind of role models is really, really important for, for, for me to be like, look, I can do this in a few years time. Why did you choose to do both? Like, why have you chosen to kind of divide yourself and... <laughs> um, I think I could probably be a full-time clinical neurosurgeon and that would be okay. Um, I couldn't give up neurosurgery to be a full-time academic. Um, but I think the thing that the thing that attracts me to both is is this exact thing of you're in a really, really unique position of of being on that front line, you know treating patients, looking at the brain every day. And um, and so let's use that opportunity to understand more, to improve the outcomes of the next people that come down the line. Um, and I think that's that's the real kind of justification for me wanting to do, you know, both research and clinical medicine. I I really understand. It. Yeah, they're both very exciting things. I think it's, it sounds to me like mm. you've got this perfect combination, as challenging as it might be, because each obviously complements the other as well um yeah and there are there are things there are things that and and, and this is something that i've kind of discovered through the course of, of the phd i think and and having dedicated time over the last almost three years to to think about things and not worry about the clinical side so much um but i i realized that going down the line i am um, I, I think i have to be a very good surgeon um but I won't necessarily be the best at having research skills. So I won't be the best person in coding. I won't be the best image processing person. I won't be, you know, I won't have these all these skills to the level that someone who's doing it full time does. But what my my job will be is to be that intermediate person to say, hey, OK, this is my problem that I'm facing in the clinic. and this is how I need to translate that into a language that, you know, the coding scientists and the, you know, the mathematicians and the engineers can understand. And similarly, then if they find a solution to the problem, I need to be able to say, okay, this is how I want to translate this back to the clinic. And this is how I want to test whether your solutions are working appropriately or not, and then adopt them into, into patient care. Are there many people who have this combined role like you do? 
I say neurosurgery as a specialty is a is a relatively academic specialty. Uh-huh. Um, there's quite a lot of neurosurgeons out there who who may not have you know a um, you know dedicated time in their weeks to do research, but they're still involved in in plenty of research in in terms of trying to improve outcomes for their patients or improve our understanding of the brain or understanding of the of the conditions that we treat. Um, and so I'd say there's lots and lots of academic neurosurgeons out there. It's good to know. It's good to know. I mean, something that I come across a lot um, in these interviews and speaking to cool people like you is that people have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. And quite understandably, especially if we're, you know, I, well, I'll just speak for myself, been off my face quite a lot in the past, at least, because of seizures and being doped up on drugs. And you've got the memory of goldfish. So even if you do ask these questions, oh, if you, if you have extra time, oh, by the way, Mr. Surgeon, like, what do you like doing the rest of your time? Of course, you know, unlikely to remember anyway. It's not like your priority in life at that time. And so it's really cool to hear that you're not just, you know, chopping up bits of brain and scooping out the dodgy bits, but you're actually, you know, doing other stuff behind the scenes, actually finding out, making new discoveries to better surgery. Because um, without research, we're a bit stuffed and things aren't going to improve, right? Could, could you tell us something about neurosurgery for epilepsy that you think people don't generally know? What's some sort of like new-ish discovery? Or what do you think the next sort of five to 10 years hold? Um. I'm going to tell you something that surprised me <laughs> cool. and, and where I think the field could, could kind of go in a way. Um, so the, um, there's, there's a lot of effort that goes into finding where your seizures are coming from. So, you know, you, everyone who goes through what we call a pre-surgical evaluation um, will have, you know, plenty of clinic appointments with loads and loads of different doctors and neurologists, and you'll have by that time, probably multiple MRI scans. Um, you'll be admitted to a hospital with EEG electrodes stuck on your head and wait for you to have seizures. Um, you'll see a psychologist, you'll see a psychiatrist. Um, and then all this data, this is the bare minimum, right? And then all this data gets taken to a big meeting where there's loads and loads of different specialists, including neurosurgeons. And we sit and think, hmm, are you likely to benefit from epilepsy surgery or not? Um, and one of the things that we can do if we're not quite sure where they're coming from is put intracranial electrodes. So put wires that measure your brain electrical activity into the brain itself uh, and measure the signals. And our current kind of clinical standard of interpreting these signals is very much still visual. And it's still based on, you know, technology that was, I guess, first kind of discovered and used in the 1930s. How reassuring. Um, and so, but the, you know, it's a huge amount of setup. It's, it's a huge amount of, of work that not just neurosurgeons, but the whole team puts into setting up, uh, into interpreting the signals, into knowing where they are in the brain. Um, but still we say, you know, we want to take out in a way the bits where your seizures start. And literally that's done by a neurophysiologist who has spent years and years training in this and, and becoming an expert in this, um, looking at the signals and going, ah, there. Um, and I think the, the kind of concept of applying advanced mathematics to these EEG signals is, uh, I think, you know, you're involved in some companies that are, that are starting to do this. There are, 
there are you know it, it, it's gaining steam in mm -hmm, a way mm -hmm. and but it still isn't being used in every single patient um, and so I think you know with the increase in computing power with more and more people who are interested in this these mathematicians who who I think I think they still need neurologists neurosurgeons uh, neurophysiologists epileptologists whatever you want to call them they still need some clinical input in terms of driving what they analyze mathematically um, and and I think that's that's going to be the future there's going to be something that will say hey look you know if you use this mathematical formula then this gives a really good readout of the bits that are causing seizures and the bits that are not it's so exciting it really is and knowing what knowing that there's realistic hope is great especially for people who you know have been through the mill a bit and might still have refractory epilepsy or whatever and for their families as well it's just nice to know that there is stuff going on behind the scenes i've got this random question and it's so i know people affected by epilepsy who have um focals in different parts of the brain so it's and i and i the last i learned was that generally speaking you are likely to be unsuitable for epilepsy surgery if you have seizures originating in more than one place now is that still the case or could that be changing or what's the latest traditionally the answer is no mm. um but i think it is potentially changing and it, it's it's part of this whole kind of mathematical analysis thing is that i think I think the future of, of epilepsy surgery lies in in changing the way different areas of the brain talk to each other mm -hmm. rather than going in and scooping bits out. Um, and I think that, that, and this is very much my own personal view, I, I, I don't know if other people hold the same opinion as me, um, but I think um, neuromodulation is probably where the future is at. And so there are different ways of electrically stimulating different parts of the brain um, and changing that brain from a brain that is very susceptible to seizures, for example, to one that is less susceptible to seizures. Um, and so in, in that kind of framework or way of thinking about things, I think um, someone with epilepsy and arising from multiple different areas of the brain could benefit from, from that sort of technology. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily know that we have really robust evidence to show that yes this is going to be the way um, but I think from things like deep brain stimulation and um, in the US they've got responsive neurostimulation um, there's they're starting to build some evidence that actually you know this may be an option. Another example of why we need further investment into research because we won't know unless more work is done right? Do you sometimes do surgery on children who do have multiple uh, focal areas, but you found one prominent one, you're like, okay, this is the chief dodgy bit, we'll take that out alone. Caveat, I don't do any surgeries on my own. <laughs> um, but um, certainly in, in, our, in our department, we, we do do these types of cases. We go into it though, knowing that, for example, we are targeting one seizure type, which is particularly a problematic um, or disruptive to that patient's quality of life. Um, and I guess a, a common example is a genetic condition called tuberous sclerosis, where children have lots and lots of different abnormalities in the brain. Um, and so it's 
each of which may be responsible for certain types of seizures or multiple of them may be kind of talking to each other and responsible for a certain seizure type. And so we will go in explicitly knowing that we're not going to get rid of all the seizures, but we're hoping to address one particular seizure type. Yeah, which is cool. I can totally relate. I still have focals after, although, oh my goodness, I haven't told many people yet. So here I am like declaring it um, openly because I'm, I've come to terms with it now, but I, I was in um, focal status epilepticus a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And I've never been in that situation before um, that I'm wow. aware of. And uh, mm. obviously that's post, seven, eight years post-surgery. Um, but the reason I was thinking of that though, is that it's, just because something like that might happen after surgery, it doesn't mean that surgery wasn't worth it. Like I say surgery was the, one of the best things I've ever done in my life, but my expectations were managed. I knew that my success rate was calculated at being approximately 60%. So I'm like, cool, just just do it, mate. Like I knew what the risks were um, and it was pretty exciting stuff anyway. So yeah, just do it. And I got to have the, you know, the most gorgeous hairstyle. So, um, so I guess it's like kind of weighing things up, isn't it? A bit like with these tubular sclerosis children, we can take a, just a short description of what you're saying. Yeah, we can take a bit out and that could help your epilepsy reduce maybe your seizure frequency or severity, but you're not promising that it's all going to go. Yeah, and I think for each each person, that's a, that's a almost individual risk benefit. Yes, very so, individual. You know, there are there are... It depends on, you know, which area of the brain you're talking about, how close it is to the important bits like speech and language function and motor function and all this sort of thing. Um, and and it also depends on the person in their family circumstances. You know, some people will say, actually, I'll give up anything in the world to get rid of my seizures. Um, and others will say, actually, no, my, you know, my reading ability is really important to me. And if that means that I have to continue having seizures, then so be it. I have, I know somebody who's a musician um, and an artist and didn't want a particular type of surgery because she would lose the best thing in her life, which complete fair enough, right? Yeah, so 100%. it's all balance things out. Okay, cool. Right. Was there anything else you would like to tell our listeners and our, our viewers whilst we're here? No, this has been, this has been really fun. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I've never done one of these before. It's been, uh, yeah, oh, it's been really fun. Well, I can guarantee this will not be your last. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.